0: So Holy Spirit, thank you for your uh, presence here in this room with us now. And I ask that, Lord, uh, you would use this time, the words that I'm going to speak and the ways that we receive it into our heart for your glory and uh, for the good of the world around us that you love. In your name, amen. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Ryan Beating. I'm the director of Young Adult Ministries here at Belprez, which means I work with those in the kind of post-high school to early 30s age range single, dating, married, I'll take any of you. So if you're in that stage of life, um, I encourage you to check out what we're doing online and know that I would love to meet you, whether that's a quick handshake in the back after the service or maybe a longer conversation over your favorite beverage someplace in the area. Well, this week we're continuing our summer series on the Gospel of Mark. But before I go too far, uh, I'd like to take a moment and just share that when you're not in the groove of preparing weekly talks, one of the more difficult tasks is coming up with a catchy title, something not too cheesy, but that will stick with people. And this week was no exception for me. So here are some of the drafts that I tried out before settling on a permanent one. First, I went for the numerology. Five dudes, four ropes, three scribes, two angry homeowners, and one used stretcher for sale. (laughs) Kind of clever, but a little cheesy and not a lot of laughter for that one. (laughs) So then I thought I'd pay homage to a classic film and tried Paralytic on a hot Thatched Roof. But I was worried that nobody under 30 would get that reference, clearly that's the case. Then I went with what will probably be your favorite before our time is over, who is this guy? Where's Dudley? (laughs) And then I remembered that this would live forever on the interwebs and I decided to go with power community because we're going to look at what this story and specifically Jesus and his four friends teach us about community. And I'm going to talk about three important markers of community that we find in Mark 2, about the kind of community that forms around Jesus. Vision, faith, forgiven. Here we go. As Scott described last week, Mark moves along like a great action movie. The moment Mark begins, it's clear he has the destination for us in mind, and he's going to take us there quickly with some serious action along the way. The story in Mark 2 does not disappoint. It is like an action sequence from a Ridley Scott film, right? We've got this dusty scene. People are trying to jostle their way to the front. There's a lot of suspense as these four burly guys carry their sick friend up on the roof, which they promptly punch a hole in, and then lower the guy down with ropes to interrupt some messianic teacher, who, as he's about to demonstrate, is the actual messiah. Then this messiah reads the minds of the bad guys in the room, heals the paralyzed man just to make a point, and this formerly paralyzed man gets up without saying a word to anyone and walks out carrying his mat. It's an awesome scene. And as I said, we're going to focus on what all this teaches us about the kind of community that forms around Jesus. Now, as a community that has formed around Jesus here in Bellevue, I'd like us to begin with a simple interactive illustration about the power of a community when it shares the vision it has for one of its members. So if you have a phone or a mobile device that's capable of sending email, I'm gonna give you permission, something you've never been told to do in church before. (laughs) Take it out, unlock it, enter your passcode that keeps your kids from getting on it and playing Angry Birds all the time. Now, for those of you who don't have an email application, please, you can just write down the email address and participate at home later. But here is, we're gonna practice this illustration, and here's the email address we're gonna use. Leatherberry at Belprez.org. <laughs> okay? I'm serious here. Now in the subject line, please write something like hey Rich or hi Rich, and then type out a little encouraging note to Rich. He's our awesome missions pastor. For example, uh, I think that I will write, Dear Rich, you are cool. Thanks for not leaving me in that Cambodian Cambodian prison we visited last year. Your friend, Ryan. Okay, I'm going to give you a moment to continue writing your message. It's worth noting it's been a big summer for Rich. His youngest child just graduated from high school while his eldest daughter got married. And though these have all been wonderful events in the Leatherberry household, you know, for a man his age, these are emotional milestones for him. And of course, I think he could use a boost of encouragement from his community. You got it? Okay, good. This illustration is part of the simple power of community, and nothing sums that up better than. 1,000 encouraging emails going into your inbox, (laughs) causing your phone to vibrate and chirp over and over (laughs) and over all day. Now listen, as fun as it is to imagine Rich's phone alerting him several hundred times today, he is a great member of our community, and I think it will be cool for him to get a glimpse of how we as community see him, which leads us to uh, the first of the three markers of community we're going to talk about from this passage. A community that gathers around Jesus is a community of vision. And not just one vision, though that's true. If you've been around here for a while, you know Scott and our leadership here are calling us to participate in a vision to see holistic revival come to the east side and beyond. But within communities like ours that gather around Jesus, there are tens, hundreds, even thousands of other visions that all point to who each of us can be through an encounter with Jesus. And the four friends we meet in the story had this kind of vision for who their paralyzed friend could be. Maybe they'd heard the testimony of the man healed from leprosy Scott talked about last week. Or perhaps they'd heard or met Peter's mother in law who'd been healed in the very house whose roof they were about to dig a hole in. Or maybe they themselves had witnessed Jesus' teaching or miraculous action. Whatever it was, they were convinced and had a vision for who their friend could be, so much so that they were willing to go to these extreme measures to get him in front of Jesus. Let me tell you about Kenny. Kenny is the real name of a young man here in Bellevue who gave permission for me to share his story. If we back up a few years, we find a Kenny who didn't have a lot to live for. Because of some choices and actions on his part and some of the things that happened to him, Kenny didn't finish high school. He wasn't living at home, and he had a family, but they didn't want to have much to do with him. At the time, he was working at a local retail store when he ran into a former co-worker who had left to go to work at the Heart & Home store. As many of you know, the Heart & Home thrift store is run by and supports the work of the Jubilee Reach Center, which is a community ch- uh, center our church started in Bellevue's most diverse and underserved neighborhood. Over the last five years, 1,000 volunteers and partners have served over 5,000 youth, families, and individuals in need. So this former coworker told Kenny that he should come and work at the Heart and & Home, and he agreed. When Kenny's friend, Alice, who told me this story and who worked as Jubilee's a volunteer coordinator at the time, met him, she says, Kenny just didn't have a lot of life in him. It was difficult to engage Kenny in conversation. He was withdrawn, and when he would talk with you, he would say only a few words, and he would never look you in the eyes. But over time, the community of people around him and the Heart & Home store loved on Kenny and began to encourage him. They worked with him, but they also befriended him. And one man in particular really welcomed Kenny in as part of his family. Well, over time, Kenny began to find hope and healing. He went back to school and got his GED. He enrolled in classes at Bellevue College. He eventually reconciled with his family, who invited him to come back and live at home while he went to school. Now, Alice says the change in Kenny has been remarkable. When she sees him at Jubilee now, it's Kenny who smiles big first and yells across the room, hey, Alice. He has a job now at Nintendo. And though, like uh, all of us in this room, he's still a work in progress. Kenny has found life and healing and restoration, which all started because the community of faith around him had a vision for who Kenny could be and loved him enough to not let him stay there. The second marker of the kind of community that gathers around Jesus is faith, particularly faith in the authority of Jesus and how that authority has been given to his people to act in his name. Now, there are a couple of different kinds of faith happening here in this scene. As I mentioned, even though Jesus told him not to, the guy healed of leprosy in chapter 1 goes around telling everyone he ran into who had healed him. So the result is that when Peter comes, or Jesus comes to Peter's house, a crowd quickly gathers inside and out, which leads to this awesome scene of these four guys getting burly on Peter's roof and lowering their friend down, after which Mark writes this phrase, When Jesus saw their faith. What was it about their faith that moved Jesus? Even more importantly, what is it Jesus wants to teach us about the role of faith, or even the kind of faith, that marks the community that gathers around him? Given all the healings and the casting out of demons that Jesus had been doing, I'm guessing that there was a lot of growing faith in the power of Jesus. But later in this passage, when Jesus reads the minds of the upset religious leaders who are not pleased that he's acting like God, he says, But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, not power, but authority. So what was the greater miracle in this story? That the paralytic was healed by the power of Jesus, or that Jesus was able to free him from sin by his authority? Okay, just a side note, when a preacher tells you he's not going to get too nerdy with the original language, he's about to get nerdy with the original language. <laughs> so here we go, I'm not going to get too nerdy with the original language, but there are two ancient Greek words used most often in the New Testament to talk about power, dunamis and exousia. First, dunamis is literally the miraculous power that's at work. This is the word we get our word dynamite from. Now, later in Mark 5, we'll read about a woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years, who snuck through the crowd with the faith that if she simply touched Jesus' robe when he passed by, she'd be healed. This is exactly what happens. And when she did this, Jesus stops in his tracks because at once Jesus realized that power, dunamis, had gone out from him. But here in Mark 2, Jesus seems more concerned that the guys on the roof and the crowd in the house understand his exousia, his authority. I'm going to look at another miracle to help us understand why. Right after healing the leper, who could not tell anyone or everyone, Jesus is stopped by a Roman soldier, a centurion. And he explains to Jesus that he has a servant who's paralyzed and suffering at home. Jesus offers to go to the soldier's house and heal him, but the soldier says this to Jesus. Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, exesia, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And look out, Jesus' response here. When he heard this, Jesus, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Jesus wants us to understand that miraculous power is important and available through him. But even more important is the authority Jesus has over all creation that this power demonstrates. This authority goes beyond the healing of an individual disease or casting out of a demon. It is the, the authority over all heaven and earth Jesus has to bring forgiveness from sin and freedom ultimately from death. Why? Because he's God. The centurion understood this as one who had been given authority from the Roman Empire. Unlike the centurion, Jesus has this authority in himself because he's God. Now, as members of the Christian community, we are not Jesus and cannot extend forgiveness in the same way that he can. But we have been given power and authority from Jesus, though this is something we Presbyterians aren't always comfortable talking about or living into. Like the centurion who operates in the authority of the Roman Empire, Jesus has given us authority to operate as his hands and feet in this world. We've been given power and authority over the enemy of our souls. We've been given power and authority to cooperate with Jesus, to bring rescue and light to places of injustice and darkness, to pray for healing and deliverance, and to point the way for others to find forgiveness and salvation in Jesus. The greater miracle here in Mark 2 And what Jesus wants his communities to be marked by is faith in his authority to overcome sin and death. Well, the third and final marker of the community that gathers around Jesus I want to talk about is that of being a community of the forgiven. Jesus surprises everyone in this story, especially the paralytic and his four friends, by first telling the paralytic that his sins were forgiven. This is not the reason these guys went to all this trouble getting their friend to Jesus. They already had a religious system in place to deal with sin. They were coming for physical healing. Now, I imagine the look on their sweaty faces would be something like the look on my five- and seven-year-old faces if we walked into Top Hot Donuts one Sunday after church only to find everything in the case had been replaced with produce from Whole Foods. <laughs> but as I said, Jesus wants us to understand that the greater miracle here is that he has the authority to forgive the man's sins, to set him free from much more than just his paralysis. So I want to close with looking at the fullness of this word forgiven. If you were to say to me, BD, I forgive you, generally what I think is that you were no longer holding something I'd done against me, that you were no longer upset with me, that our relationship was okay, or back on the road to being okay. Now, if we apply this to God saying to us, your sins are forgiven, it is true that God is no longer holding our sin against us, and that our relationship with Him is restored. And this is an unbelievably powerful thing. But there's another layer to this forgiveness that I think many of us need to understand. I have a friend who I'll call Stephen that I've been close with for a long time. And we've shared the deepest parts of our lives together, and he's given me permission to share this story. When Stephen was in high school, he had a longtime girlfriend who got pregnant. And as a couple of 16 year olds who were not Christians and terrified at the fact of facing their parents with this news and of having a baby, they pulled their money together and got an abortion. Now, like a lot of young people who go through this, Stephen was plagued by guilt and shame for many years after. Long after his relationship with this girl ended and even after he became a Christian in college, Stephen felt this tremendous guilt over the decision to end the pregnancy, as well as any pain he might have helped cause this young woman who he eventually lost connection with. Now, when Stephen described this experience, he said that he knew intellectually that he'd been forgiven for this. He knew that through his relationship with Jesus, He was no longer under the condemnation of past sin, but the guilt and shame still haunted him for years. If we fast forward, Stephen's now in his mid-20s and is married and working in ministry. And as he described, God began to talk to him about this struggle. During prayer one week, he described to me that God very gently began to confront him about the guilt and shame he was carrying. And essentially said to Stephen, you haven't let me fully forgive you for this. Well, Stephen's reaction was confusion. He told God, you know, I believe you've forgiven me. Uh, I know that I'm in relationship with you. What do you mean that I haven't let you forgive me? And the sense he got back from the Lord was that though he knew he'd been forgiven and that his salvation was secure, Stephen felt he still needed to carry some amount of shame, guilt, and remorse for the rest of his life, that this was the consequence of a decision that couldn't go back and be changed. But Jesus said to him, you need to give me that too. And it was amazing for Stephen how difficult it was for him to do this. As he shared with me, there was almost a fear in letting go, that it wasn't right, that he might be getting off easy somehow. And finally, God said to him, you don't need to forget, but you do need to let me take this burden. It's not for you to carry anymore. So Stephen went to a mutual friend of ours who was a fellow pastor and shared all this with him. And the friend friend essentially walked him through the story Jesus tells of the prodigal son how the son who'd left home early with his inheritance had sinned against his father and made terrible decisions that resulted in him eventually being homeless, hungry, and desperate for help. Eventually, the son returns home, hoping simply to have a place as a servant in his father's house. Now, if you've read the story, you know that the father runs out to embrace his son. Now, the son, like my friend Stephen, starts explaining that he simply wants a small place in his father's house, that simply to be allowed in, Is all he expects because of what he'd done and how he treated the father. But the whole time the father is wrapping his own cloak over him and putting a ring on his, the family ring on his finger and calling for a celebration that his son who was lost had returned home. Well the feeling inside Stephen, he said, was palpable and lasting since the experience of receiving the fullness of forgiveness and restoration that God had for him Stephen tells me that though he hasn't forgotten what happened, he is no longer plagued by feelings of guilt and shame. He says it's literally like a great weight has been taken off of him by Jesus. For Stephen and for the paralytic and his friends, this is what Jesus wants them to grasp. When Jesus uses the word forgiven here in Mark 2, the root of the word is to throw. The language here is like something being forcefully thrown off of this man. His sins are no longer being held against him. And like my friend Stephen, he's finally letting go of the guilt and shame, the weight of the sin, and he no longer needs to live and make choices out of that pain. The sense of freedom he must have felt as he rose up off that mat and carried it out must have been incredible. I think too often that we settle for forgiveness being like a transaction where we know that Jesus has covered a great debt that we know we owe. And while this is true, there is this other layer, this final 15 feet to cross to greater freedom that I think Jesus wants for us. It's possible that there are some of you here today who are not ready to accept the fullness of God's forgiveness, that what I'm describing doesn't seem possible or even make sense. But for others, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And if that's you, I encourage you, don't ignore the greater freedom Jesus may be pushing you towards. And if you want help exploring that, Uh, There are pastors and staff here who'd be honored to walk through that with you. Well, while reading my sermon Thursday to a group uh, here at the church, one of the women, Georgia McCoy, said, you know, I wonder if there are four people who'd carry me like this to Jesus. So maybe you're not someone who's plagued by guilt and shame over past mistakes or who feels a strong need for the kind of forgiveness I've described. Or maybe you're far along enough on the other side of it. If that's you, I encourage you to pursue Jesus for a vision, for who those around you can be and how you can help carry them there. Faith in the authority he has and has given you to participate in his rescue mission, to overcome the brokenness and the darkness in the world around you. And finally, what it means to live as part of a community that has this deep understanding of the kind of forgiveness that truly sets us free. These are the markers of the kind of community that gathers around Jesus and has the power to change the world, one vision at a time. So God, I pray that you would build our community up in this way. Give us all the vision for others. Lord, the faith in your authority and the authority you've given to us to act in that authority. Lord, help us to understand truly the forgiveness that you extend, the freedom that comes when we hear you say, your sins are forgiven. Do this for us and then help us to turn and do it for the world around us that you love. In your name, Jesus, amen.